Oh, great singing, great worship. It's kind of energized uh, to go into Matthew 22 after that song. And I would invite you to turn in your Bibles there, turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 22, I've been out uh, last week, uh, was, we had the guest speak, speaker, and so we've had a little bit of a pause, but I want to kind of get a head of steam going into a text that is a bit of a brain teaser. It's Matthew 22, verses 23 through 33. Listen as I read this section. The same day Sadducees came to him who said that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there are seven, were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh, after them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For the resurrection, they neither married nor are given in marriage, but like angels in heaven but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. This is an interesting text. This text has been referenced more in sermons probably than taught because the reference is usually just to make the case that marriage doesn't exist in heaven. Sort of left like a kind of a lead balloon, like a little thud. Okay, well, if you're married, that that took a lot of work and uh, I guess that's over now. Um, Or... Uh, I, I, I don't know, where are you supposed to go with that in terms of I'm a believer, I want to be married, but then marriage isn't in heaven or however you want to wrap your mind around that. That's kind of been how this text has come into my sort of life. I've never really studied it for what is the deeper issue beneath the issue, which is what is your view of heaven? That's what Jesus is getting at here with his response to Sadducees who are trying to trip him up. He is 36 hours or less from going to the cross, and yet he's going to field a question from Sadducees who are trying to trip him up, get him to be discredited publicly, to kind of disqualify his teaching ministry that he's been giving and the impact and effect that he's had Proving that he's Messiah, they want to disprove this. They want to discredit him. They want to shame him with a question. And Jesus uses this question to teach about heaven. What is heaven really like? What's on the other side is my title. Every age has been fascinated with heaven. Every religion has some form of the afterlife, even if it's like the netherworld or some kind of 
nirvana, even recreation or um, reincarnation, I should say, is a form of people's afterlife um, philosophy. People have all kinds of ideas. I guess some people believe that you're just annihilated, that you go into an existenceless state. But there's a vague question lingering in the human psyche, in the mind, where people are wondering what it's going to be like. And people are fearful of the afterlife because they don't have a clear understanding of how it's relatable to here and now. So the idea is stay here as long as you can, do as much as you can in this lifetime, live retrospectively, live in the past, live in your videos, don't lose your pictures, don't lose your history, don't lose your experiences, remember the trip, find the photo album, put, put the VCR tapes on something to chronicle, all of these things are part of what people live for that way, but Dare I say people are fearful to shift and look future and say time's winding down here to go to somewhere else. It's a different vantage point, different way to look at things. People are into self-preservation. They're into health. They're into medicine. And at some level, scientifically, I think people are living longer. It's probably provable that people are in certain cultures. Maybe, maybe a world analysis would say people are living longer with life expectancy But really, as scripture says, you're on borrowed time past 70. (laughs) You know, we live three score and 10, but, you know, perhaps longer. Everyone is on a similar road. We're all on the same road and terminus to a real and final end here from this life to the next. If you know medical doctors, if you're friends with any of them, I am. Got a couple medical doctor friends, and they all sort of have this, this, uh, dare I say, sort of persona, this mindset that they're thinking, you know, I've known a lot of people that were here, they seemed fine, and then they were gone. And uh, one doctor friend of mine who's a a non-Christian, he just said, you know, when people are going to die, they're just just going to die. There's a a finality in their minds. It's a sensitive... uh, thing to bring up to talk about death because we've lost loved ones we we there are some who've lost people who are really dear and close to them and their immediate family and horrible um grief that that is on you from that but it, it changes your priorities when you lose someone you understand what life is really measured by in terms of love and experiences and togetherness understand that when I've gone to Virginia, I haven't been there in a while now, um, but it's where I'm from. When I'm driving on the country roads between the middle of Virginia, like Lynchburg and Virginia Beach, there's a lot of little country churches, a lot of little white steepled churches off the side of the road with these little like fences, you know, these little um, wrought iron fences with cemeteries in the front of the church. And it's like, well, that's attractive, you know, like, oh, look, I want to go to church and there's a seminary. But that was an intentional move on the part of the church about 50 years ago because 100 years ago because people wanted the reminder of eternity to be in the front lot that was their that was their seeker sensitive move was to say think about eternity this really matters people die we also love these people who have died but they they didn't end here they're up there they're in heaven so that's what we're talking about that philosophy has shifted 
Arlington Cemetery filled with white crosses like an ocean. You can see that in your mind's eye if you think about that view. And it just is a visible reminder of death and eternity and sacrifice. It's happening all the time. The terminus is inevitable. It's in the background of everybody's mind. What is the other side like? What's on the other side? Jesus wants to answer this question. And really, you have two views of heaven that we're looking at. You have a biblical and an unbiblical of heaven. You have a, a right version and a wrong version. You have a heaven that is, that is tactile, real, personal, identifiable, where you know each other by name. It's engaging. It's interactive. It's physical. Or you have what... Everybody else believes about heaven, which is it's esoteric, it's uh, hard to relate to, it's uh, mystical, it's, it's different, it's, it's hard to take what you love here and view yourself there doing the things that you love here, there. And so heaven becomes something that we really don't look forward to. And I would imagine that you, like me, have been indoctrinated with a more es- esoteric or mystical, or matrix, the matrix-like heaven that is sort of this weird dimension that you go, how will I even know people? And I'm not even going to be married anymore. And, you know, angels are flying around, and we're in the clouds. And what is this really about anyway? And so how can I look forward to it really? Right? Is that, I mean, tell me. I mean, that is your view of heaven, probably, that you have to throw off, and then you have to put on a biblical view of heaven to grasp something that you want to go to. That's what Jesus is doing here. Again, 20 hours, 36 hours, 30 hours before he's going to die, he's going to have a theological correction moment um, so that those listening, listening in will have hopeful heaven, not hopeless heaven. Christ is investing in clarifying people's view of heaven. It's the same thing we should do as his representatives here on earth. We should engage questions and bring people to the Bible, bring people to the truth and show people what the future really holds, what heaven really is like and why people should want to go there. Bringing everything to bear, brought to bear with the truth is really our life mission. It really is. The longer I'm here, that really is what life is all about. Those are the meaningful conversations, the meaningful moments that you have with those whom you love or those whom need to hear this truth. So if you're taking notes, we're trading a hopeless heaven for a hopeful heaven. Trading a hopeless heaven for a hopeful heaven. And there's two versions of heaven that are taught here. And it begins with an unbiblical view of heaven. And that's verses 23, really, through 20. Eight, we begin with a supposition. The supposition is verse 23. This is a pre-understanding. That's what the word supposition means. It's, a, it's something you suppose. And this is what the Sadducees suppose. I'm going to describe the Sadducees. Verse 23, the same day. So it's Wednesday evening. Sadducees, Wednesday evening of the Passion Week. Christ is going to the cross. He's going to die on Friday. The same day the Sadducees came to him who say, there's no resurrection. And they asked him a question. So what do they say? They weren't saying that out loud to Jesus at this point. They were saying it to themselves. There's no such thing as a resurrection. It's not real. People aren't going to be physical in heaven. That's what it means. Resurrection is physical. 
Resurrection is the idea that your body, when it dies, uh, and even if it decomposes or is cremated or what have you, at one, at some point, God is going to take believers who've died and their spirits in heaven, and there's going to be a recombining of molecules and on an atomic level, a reconstituting of who you are in heaven. And the Sadducees are saying, that's not real. I interpret the Bible differently than that. I want to keep it sort of in this duality where physicality, physical stuff is down here and it's evil and it's weird and it's, it's wrong. And once you go to heaven, you're free from that. But you're, you're kind of in a mystical realm where you don't really know each other and you're up there and it's esoteric and it's different. Jesus is hearing from people, the Sadducees, who believe this thing. Now, the Pharisees, who are their counterparts, the people who, um, who were equally respected religious leaders, were keepers of the law. They believed in the resurrection. And the reason they believed in the resurrection was because they were all about legalism and you better, you better follow the law well enough to get to heaven. And they would bind people with guilt and shame because, with power plays because people couldn't keep the law and they would, they would keep them hold up that way. But they would say, look, one day you're going to have to stand before God as who you are with your identity, with your name, with your physical self before God. And you're going to be held accountable for that. That was the Pharisees religion. That's the religion of, of legalism. On the other side, you have the Sadducees who are the Gnostic sort of liberal woke people who are going, you know, um, it's all good. Um, the Bible is um, inspiring because it's, it's um, a philosophy book. And yes, there's the law and yes, there's the history and, the, and we believe it all. But we really don't believe in some future hardcore accountability or some judgment that's coming. They're the scholars. They're like the, you know, unbelieving university professor type intellectuals that were inspiring people to that kind of religion. And that's a very widely loved religion today. People want truth. They think they want truth. They think they want even the Bible or they want their philosophy or some sort of admixture. And they'll put themselves under intellectual gurus who stimulate the mind. And, but ultimately, we as the Bible said, have the philosophy of eat, drink, and be merry for what? Tomorrow we die. Hey, just enjoy life. Do your thing. There's a lot of sinning down here, and there's some physical sin, but that doesn't matter because body and, and spirit are going to be separated on such a level that you're, woo, get out, of, get out of jail free card in heaven under this mystical into this mystical realm. That's why heaven is promoted in the way it is in our culture and has been through the ages. It's just this netherworld. There's no real hardcore teeth in heaven. The Pharisees are going, yes, there is. And we want to leverage that to control you. The Sadducees are going, no, there isn't. That's not how it is. So follow us. And the Sadducees want to trip Jesus up so they can promote their religion. Again, Isaiah 22, 13, um, talking about why Israel was going to go into Babylonian captivity. They were forsaking God's accountability. And um, they were saying, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Um, Proverbs 23, 35, the wisdom literature under Solomon. Um, again, when shall I awake? I must have another drink is the mindset. Um, Luke 12, 19, 
For I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And then 1 Corinthians 15, 32 says this. This is where Paul is confronting that, that philosophy, that worldly philosophy that says, eat, drink, and be merry. Just live it up and don't worry about the future. It says, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Israel, in other words, or at Ephesus, meaning martyrs, people have died for the faith. What have we gained in this? If the dead are not raised, if there's no real resurrection, I mean, your body's being ripped apart by animals in the amphitheater. What do we gain by that if there's no resurrection? He says, the mindset is, let us eat, drink, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. I guess it's all meaningless. Now, he was arguing the contrary to that. This life-defining motto of physical satisfaction now is what the Sadducees wanted Jesus to capitulate to not a physical world in the future, but a spirit world. These are the philosophies that Jesus is confronting, but let's see how the Sadducees dress up this wrong mindset and they do it with a ridiculous scenario. It's kind of interesting. Look with me at verse 24. So they ask him a question saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third down to the seventh after the, after them all, the woman died in the resurrection. Therefore of the seven whose wife shall she be for they all had her. Now, first of all, the Sadducees are referencing Moses, which Jesus says nothing to the contrary, which means that irrefutably Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Moses, literally him. Liberals will say, no, we don't know one way or the other. Well, this proves it. Moses said it. He's he's quoting Moses. They're, They're citing Moses in the law in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10, which is the law of leveret marriage. And the law of leveret marriage was this law that Moses wrote right before the children of Israel went into the promised land. Deuteronomy is the law they carried with them into the promised land. He wrote it down and said, what do you do if a woman suddenly loses her husband and has little babies that they have to be taken care of? How do we fix this? What is her insurance policy for her to be safe and for the name of their name to go on? Because the the head of the household, hold the male name continuing on, gave security to the business, to the opportunities and to the inheritance that would live on in that family's life. And so if that was ripped away suddenly, a woman felt very vulnerable and indeed was in that culture. And so what do we do? Well, leveret marriage meant that if a husband died and there was a brother of that husband who was single and there were no kids that were adult kids to take over the family business, the family farm, the family whatever, then that brother would by law marry that woman and become like the proxy husband, a genuine covenant marriage where you are genuinely committed under the Lord and you are married and you're taking on the household and the responsibilities and the family name. And if we were to look at Deuteronomy 25, this reference in verse nine, it says that if the brother said no dice, I don't want to marry, I'm, I'm not interested. And that brother was eligible to do it. Then she would by law have permission to publicly spit in that man's face 
It's very significant to not do that. It was ensuring women were taken care of, unforeseen deaths. Remember Ruth who died and um, was a Moabitess and she was left bereft and, and was kind of hopeless. And then the kinsman redeemer Boaz married her. This is the picture of redemption and, and help and grace from God to keep something going. You say, well, in modern times, we have insurance policies and such. I have a really good friend who's out of state who um, ran a particular kind of business and his colleague and friend who he um, went to school with had heart issues and um, physical, you know, vulnerability, but they also had like five or six kids, um, he, he and his wife, but had a similar business. This man suddenly died, um, you know, in an unforeseeable, um, dramatic, you know, fashion, just dropped dead. And so the wife is left with her kids and the business that she has no idea how to run. And um, the, the inheritance or the money was willed in such a way where they couldn't really um, utilize it right away. And so she was left very vulnerable. And so this friend of mine left his family for a time to go to another state, take over that business, run it. And in the meantime, keep it going so that they could set up an exit strategy for dissolving the business or whatever, so that the woman would be taken care of. He, he's literally playing this kind of proxy role, taking care of the kids, making it happen, and figuring out as an executor, because he had promised that friend he would do that if something happened. That's the kind of commitment that is represented here. First Timothy 5.8 says that, you know, when... If you do not take care of your immediate family, then you're worse than an unbeliever. It's what we're supposed to do. So this does relate even to today. The, but the Sadducees scenario, I have to say, is a ridiculous one. The principle is good, and the Leverett marriage teaching is good from Matthew 25. But what they're saying is, okay, you're saying resurrection is uh, real in heaven. So let's see how Moses' law translates into heaven. And I'm going to build a scenario for you, Jesus, and we want you to um, decipher, you know, which way this should go. So um, there's a scenario where a wife loses her husband, then loses another husband, then loses another husband, loses another husband, loses another husband. Seven times the, the, she marries the brother of the brother of the next brother, and they never have kids. So she's unable to conceive with, with any of these men, and, um, and they each continue to die. And finally, she just dies. And so this is a ridiculous scenario, because how many times does, you know, what is she feeding these men? <laughs> What's happening here? What's really going on? There was a guy that came up to me after first service. I won't be able to land the joke, but he's like a detective by trade. I don't remember what he said that he thought that the woman was doing to them. It wasn't good. But all, all that to say, all that to say, this is a ridiculous scenario. It is comical if you think about it. Husband dead, husband dead, and there's no kids. There's nobody taking over the business. Okay, Jesus, what are you going to do with this one? This happened seven times, and then she goes to heaven. So there they are. And we all believe in the resurrection, right? So there they are, identifiable, name, know each other. This is, you know, like, this is from the Sadducees' mindset, a fictional version of heaven. They're making fun of physical heaven. And they're saying, okay, so line them up. You know, this is your life. You have your pick of all seven. Which one of the seven is she going to choose? Or who's going to choose up each other? Because they all know each other. So whose is she? Because... As it said, for they all had her, verse 28. 
It was all a sealed, covenantal, physical relationship in marriage. So which is it? That's the scenario. That's, that's what Jesus has to answer. Does the law, in other words, that is physical, that is dealing with physical marriage and life, does that translate into, does Moses' law translate into heaven? And, and what do you do if you believe in resurrection? They're either believing that Jesus is going to say, look, she's married to all of them, which would violate monogamous marriage. It would violate the principle of Adam and Eve being a one flesh relationship. And so, you know, it's like they're trying to push Jesus into some sort of liberalism that way. On the other hand, um, they're trying to get Jesus to say none of them, none of them. And that way, Jesus would be trapped because he's for marriage in the Old Testament and teaching. And then in heaven, how can you be physical, know each other, having been married, and not be for marriage in heaven? So they don't have a category where Jesus can escape this dilemma. It's either all of them or none of them, and both categories from his, from the Sadducees' mindset contradict Jesus' teaching. They're really trying to undercut Jesus' teaching on resurrection um, because Jesus himself identified himself as the resurrection and the life. Remember, he taught explicitly resurrection. John eleven twenty five is the picture of physical heaven in Lazarus who died physically. Mary and Martha, my brother is dead. He was in the tomb. He was there for three days. Everybody quotes what he smelled like in the English, uh, old English language. Therefore, he stinketh. And he was, he was wrapped in burial cloths, which was a picture of him being embalmed and dead, dead, like totally dead. And Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. He comes out mummified. And they say, take off, take off the um, burial cloths, which showed him to be fully alive. It's the idea of heaven. Think about it. Like when we go to heaven, it's like the burial cloths, the, the, the cloths of this world are taken off of us and we're walking into physical heaven, fully freed, fully unfettered by sin forever. That's heaven. And Jesus is saying, do you get it? Like, yes, there's temporary loss, but Jesus is going, I am the resurrection and the life. This is what heaven is all about. And the Sadducees don't see it, they don't want to see it, and they want to contradict all of that. So they're saying, surely there's no marriage in heaven. I got you. You know, we got Jesus. And this is what Jesus does. He brings up a sidestep. So there's the supposition that the the Sadducees don't believe in resurrection. Number two, there's the scenario that was ridiculous. And then Jesus brings a sidestep. This is me forcing the S alliteration in the outline. Just forgive that for now. It says, and Jesus answered them, verse 29, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You're wrong. The word there in the Greek for wrong, I looked it up. It's the word for planao. It's, uh, um, it's planaste where we get the word planet. It's the idea of spinning planets. It's the picture of spinning planets out in the solar system. You're wrong. You're just spinning out of control. That's what Jesus is calling the Sadducees. You're just out of, you're like a swirling, reckless planet. You don't know where you're going. Why? Because you don't know the scripture. Now they did know the scripture. They could quote the scripture, memorize the scripture, teach the scripture. They had all that down, but they didn't know it, know it because they didn't have the power of God underneath what they knew. 
If you have the power of God, which is a synonym for having the Holy Spirit, you have the Spirit of God, you have the ability to see really what's there and understand the Scripture in a way that supersedes your agenda. They had the liberal agenda, the esoteric agenda, the agenda to have no teeth and no accountability in heaven. No, there'll be no physical hell. That's what they're really countering. There'll be no physical judgment in the afterlife because you're just, woo, we're all in nirvana. We're all good. Right? You know, it's just, we're good. We're, you know, we're, we're out there. I mean, that, that's what, it's the same religion. That's what they want. And so he's saying, you don't get it because you don't see the issues beneath the issue. You're a spinning planet. He gives the deeper diagnosis. Um, the Pharisees, they don't see God's word the right way. It's a bunch of hard rules, a list of hard rules where you can't try, you, you try to earn your way to heaven, you can't do it. So you're under the control of the Pharisees or you're reading the Bible as an esoteric book of philosophy. And Jesus says, you don't have the Holy Spirit, so you don't understand the word of God. Listen to me, let me pastor you for a second. When you have the Holy Spirit, the word of God becomes a love letter to your heart. And I don't mean to make Jesus any less of him being the Alpha and Omega that he is. He's the transcendent King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but he loves you deeply. He loves you more than you know. And he loves you and knows all of your shame, all your guilt, all the stuff that's going on in your mind that's wrong. He, he loves you in, in spite of everything that's going wrong and wants to speak to you through truth into your heart, into your life and give you courage and give you hope and give you fearlessness and strengthen you and just loves you unconditionally. When you have the Holy Spirit in your life where he's changed your heart, that's how you read the Bible. That's how you hear these stories. That's how you hear these scenarios. He loves you. That's knowing God with the power behind it that is seen through the Holy Spirit. Now, through the power and the Spirit, look at Jesus' biblical description of heaven. We have eyes to see. The Sadducees wouldn't be able to see this, but the crowds that were listening in could, okay? So the Sadducees are saying, unbiblical heaven. It's ridiculous. It's not physical. It can't be. The Leverett marriage thing that was a physical law in, the, in, in life here wouldn't translate into heaven, right? And Jesus is going, no, you're like a wandering planet. You're out of it. Let me refocus the lens with the Holy Spirit and show you what heaven really is like. And that begins at verse 30. This is biblical heaven with resurrection, and he redirects the thinking. He says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. In the resurrection, they were saying there's no such thing. Jesus is saying there is. For someone... For some people, they might say, you know, the idea of there being no heaven in the future, that might actually be a good thing. I mean, no, no marriage in the future. Someone might say, that's actually good news. Um, for some people, they might say, no, that's really bad news because I love my marriage. But neither sentiment should be considered in this case. Neither sentiment. Some people might want to end their marriage and say, "Woo, I'm free. I'm in heaven. And some people might say, I am so sad that I won't be married in heaven, but neither sentiment is the point. Why? Because marriage on earth is a picture of something greater that you'll get in heaven. Marriage on earth is a picture of something greater that you'll get in heaven. You've heard of Christ is the bride and the church is the bridegroom. Or, or the church is the bride and Christ is the bridegroom. It's the, it's the husband-wife 
picture of headship and submission. And we are that picture in every marriage. We're picturing Christ and his church. That union between two people is the picture of Christ in the church. And you know that. But let me say this. The healthiest marriages are the ones that realize that marriage is not the end in and of itself. Marriage is the picture of something greater, which is heaven. Anyone that loves Christ and is fully sold out to Christ realizes that Christ is the only one who can satisfy you and your spouse can't. Your spouse satisfies you and there's a temporary blessing and there's joy and pain and ups and downs and good and bad and life together. And it's a journey. It's a worthy journey. But ultimately, your satisfaction is in the Lord Jesus, right? He is your all in all. Christ is always the best. Some decide to be single because they realize that Christ is their full sufficiency and that's what God has given them in life. But no matter who you are, if you idolize your spouse and put your spouse above the Lord Jesus, that will be woefully less than what you have in the Lord Jesus. If you idolize the idea that, you know, as a married person, that you would be better off with someone else, you're really idolizing yourself above the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus is your full satisfaction. And couples that realize that Jesus is their individual satisfaction are the happiest marriages together because they're not trying to feed off each other to be satisfied, to be happy. So you either worship Jesus or you're worshiping your spouse or you're worshiping self, but you're only supposed to worship Jesus. Do I value marriage? Yes. Do I believe it takes total commitment? Yes. Do I believe it takes total sacrifice? Yes. Total understanding? Yes. Total deference? Yes. Total love? Yes. All of the above? Yes. Marriage is awesome, but it's never the meaning of your life ever. You, you love your spouse, but you love Jesus more, and you want your spouse to love Jesus more than you, always. Think about that. You always want your spouse to love Jesus more than you, and you always want to love Jesus more than your spouse. John Piper, he wrote a book called This Momentary Marriage. This is a temporary blip on, on the map of eternity. This is a moment, and it pictures something greater that's promised to us in heaven. You say, well, what is that promise? What is that greater thing? Well, look at this. He says, again, in resurrection, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So an angel-like existence is better than marriage? How does that translate? I always struggle with that because the windows and pictures of angels, you know, they're, they're speaking language uh, that we can understand in the scripture. They're always on mission. They're worshiping. They're, they're about the Lord's work. They're recognizable, understandable. They have names like Michael. I mean, you, you have Michael, the archangel. You have these, these you know, angels who met with Abraham. They were fed. They were around. And then you have like the cherubim and the seraphim. seraphim. These are angelic beings that are harder to fully understand. But Jesus' point about angels is that they're single and fully satisfied and fully on mission. That's his point here. That's what we get. 
You say, well, how is that translatable in marriage? That still, that sounds more esoteric. It sounds more mystical. It sounds almost hopeless because I'm enjoying my life with my kids or with my spouse or with my dating relationship or I'm enjoying my life as a single person that's independent. I'm enjoying all my independence. I don't want an angel-like eternity. Well, he defends this in verses 31 and 32 because he doesn't want us to be left there with a misunderstanding of heaven. Verse 31, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? Stop there. As for those who've already died, already are in heaven, that are going to be raised, I'm about to tell you something from the word of God about how they feel about heaven. That's what he's saying. And I love this description of verse 31 because he says, have you not read what was said to you by God? In other words, if you have ears here, if you have the power of God, the spirit of God, when you read the Bible, it really does penetrate your heart like a love letter and God is speaking to you. Haven't you heard from God from the scripture? That's an awesome phrase about how God speaks through the scripture, by the way. Have you not read what was said to you by God? And of course they had, because verse 32 is where Jesus is quoting Moses and what he wrote about his own experience in Exodus chapter three. Now, again, remember the Sadducees, they were citing Moses earlier about leveret marriage and Jesus comes back at them with Moses. And he says, well, let me tell you what Moses says about the resurrection. You're trying to throw me a curveball with leveret marriage, but let me tell you what Moses says about God and eternity. Exodus three is what he's quoting in verse 32, but Exodus three, one to six, let me just tell you the story says, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. Remember, he was wandering through the land of the Midianites. He had fled Egypt. He was getting ready to be called by God through the burning bush to go be the deliverer of the Israelites. Says the priest of Midian, that was Jethro. And he led his flock, Moses did, to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire. I believe that was the Lord Jesus out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush. Moses, Moses, here I am. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And here's the quote. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. God is, he identifies himself to Moses as Yahweh. And he's saying here, take your sandals off because you're on holy ground. And and Moses is, is dealing with the idea of transcendent, glory and heaven-like experience, heaven-like holiness here, and God in his grace, and I believe this is Christ, this is a Christophany in the Old Testament, where Jesus is saying, hey, wait a minute, don't freak out, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These patriarchs are real people that you know, and these are people who are with me now in heaven. That's what he's saying. Real people, identifiable, nameable, in heaven, and, and you're just, I'm, I'm inviting you in the club. Now take your sandals off. This is holy ground. You're dealing with Yahweh. I've been around for always. But at the same time, I'm the God of the living, not the dead. I'm not going to obliterate you. That's what he's doing. 
Jesus is the I am. God is Yahweh. He is the self-existent one. And what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 22, again, I am, I am. God says, I am the God of Abraham. I'm the self-existent one who is, who is with Abraham in heaven, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, a Sadducee would just read that in Exodus 3 as history. Well, there was Abraham, there's Isaac, Jacob. We get it. We love them. They're great. But now they're nameless, faceless in the matrix, woo, up in esoteric nothingness. And that's what we look forward to. There's no accountability. There's no continuity. There's no teeth to heaven. There's no physical reality, hopeless heaven. A believer will read that and say, no, my family who I've lost, who've gone already on into eternity, they're named, they're known, there's fellowship, and they're living on God. And we're going to be together in an amazing new existence together in heaven. That's how a believer should read this. Not the God of the dead, but of the living. A fair question should be raised, but the resurrection hasn't happened yet, right? 1 Corinthians 15, 52. In the future, in a moment, the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. That's all future, and that's true. We'll be put together in this amazing way at the resurrection. It hasn't happened yet. But so why are people named and identified now? If the resurrection hasn't happened, well, we know that a few things from scripture and there's some things we don't know. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things belong to the Lord. So what does it mean that you died and you're not asleep waiting for the resurrection? Well, the Bible says, Paul said, it's far better to depart and be with Christ than to stay here. Philippians one, to live is Christ and to die is what? Come on, class is what? Gain. It's better. It's better to go there. To be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. We see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. We, you know, we, we, will, we will know who we are as children of God, according to 1 John, because we'll see him as he is. It's, it's amazing. And the dead in Christ will rise, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when Jesus returns at the trumpet to bring us at the rapture to himself. Those who are already there, who are identifiable, they're pre-resurrected, but they're coming. There, there's knowledge of each other already in heaven. No more sinning, no more death, no more dying, and no more demons. It's heaven and it's fellowship and it's real now. Remember the story that, that Luke accounts of the rich man and Lazarus. Um, the, the rich man, he uh, lives for himself, not God. So he goes to hell. You have um, the poor man, Lazarus, who's named, who's known, he's in heaven, he's in what's called Abraham's bosom. All of this is a picture of pre-resurrected heaven and hell. They know each other, they're able to communicate in this story. The man who is suffering, the rich man, his greatest concern is that his brothers won't be there with him because he, he's just dying for thirst in this insufferable flame and he doesn't want his brothers to join him there. And so there's, there's a chasm between two realms, but at the same time, there are two realms where people know each other, where, where the, the rich man is feeling physical pain, somehow pre-resurrection. You also have the transfiguration. 
um, scene. Peter, James, and John, where you have Moses and Elijah who meet down there with Christ at the top of that mountain. They're identifiable, they're knowable, they're physical beings there, pre-resurrection. How, how that all jives, I don't all the way know. But there's hope in heaven, pre-resurrection. Sadly, people who are sent to hell, they're experiencing fire and torture immediately. But, that all, but they're anticipating their own version of resurrection in Revelation chapter 20, the great white throne judgment, where people are assigned judgment according to their deeds, and they are fit with a resurrection body of death, where those who are um, believers are fit with a resurrection body of life. There's no such thing as purgatory. So which do you want, physical heaven or do you want esoteric heaven? Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, ate food, he fellowshiped, he connected with the believers before he left to give a vision of what heaven would be like. First John is an amazing little window into what heaven will be like. I love this. If you look at verses one to four, chapter one, verses one to four, this is John's testimony of being with Jesus. He says, that which was from the beginning, listen to how physical this is, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That's what, which we have seen and heard. We proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, John laid across Jesus chest. Um, Thomas put his hands in the nail scarred hands of Jesus and, and the, the, his side that had been thrust through. I mean, heaven is physical. We will eat food. We will banquet together. We will fellowship together. We will have joy together. In verse four of first John one, I'm writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete apex joy in heaven. This is less about what marriage is like now compared to how we relate to each other in heaven and more about the fact that heaven is hopeful, not hopeless. We need to want heaven for real. If you believe in an esoteric heaven, then you might liken it to um, being in some dream state. You ever been half asleep and half awake and not been able to pull yourself out of that state? Am I the only one where you're like, oh, I can't wake up all the way. Is that just me? Come on. You know, and it's, it's horrible. It's a horrible feeling. I, I think that's what people believe heaven is like. I'm just in this weird, you know, state of afterlife. No, the things, watch this, the things that you love most about here now are the things that you will have in heaven if you believe on the Lord Jesus now. Everything. You say, but what about marriage? Well, the purpose of marriage is to be a foretaste for something better and greater in the fellowship that we will receive there. You'll lose nothing. I was uh, traveling this week with, with Pete, um, and we were down at the Masters University. We went to a conference on counseling at a church. It was the National um, ACBC Conference, and holding high the sufficiency of Scripture, seeing a lot of relationships from the past there. Like 1,500 people were there. It was great. 
all about the private ministry of the Word of God. And we were also at the college campus, which is just a few miles down the street. And I worked there, and you know that uh, maybe my wife also was there at college. We have two kids who are there now. What's great about going back to a place where you were 30 years ago is you'll run into people that you knew there then 30 years ago. And it's reunioning. And you probably have done this in your own right in different contexts. But when you see people and you look at their face, they're, you know, they look different a little bit. You know, the world's affected them a little bit. Um, but you hear their voice, you look in their eyes and you go, man, I remember you when. And I was talking to people, you know, where you turn around in conversation and there you are and you're like, oh my goodness, you know, I haven't seen you in so long. And these reunion moments and you're reflecting on pranks that were pulled at certain points and what happened, you know, and you know, your kids are all there and they all have the same last names and they're dating each other now or getting together, right? And they're, they're, they're over there, but you're like, we're the same people as we were then, you know, you're just doing this. Well, what is that? I mean, that's, a, that's an imperfect version of what heaven will be like. You're sort of looking retrospectively of how you were then together then. If you flip that and look forward and say, we're going to be able to be together in an unhindered, unfettered way in heaven for all of eternity, how much better? In the midst of that reunioning, I um, ran into one, one guy who was a former student leader of mine, He's part of the school board there, and um, he came up, and he has, uh, and he's, co- he's come through like four rounds of chemotherapy for leukemia, and um, he's not doing well. And um, I, you know, he's been sort of barred from, you know, contact with people. Suddenly he's there, he's at this soccer game, and at this event, his wife's there, kids and other family members, and he just wanted to talk. And I got to talk to him, got to hang out with him, and spend time, and you know, all the pretense is gone. I mean, everything for him is just laser focused on heaven, on what really matters, on life. And he was sitting up in the stands. He said, Jeff, he sort of summoned me up. He said, here, give me three, give me three more minutes. And I thought that was such a unique way to put that, you know, and I sat next to him and had some fellowship and just talking, just being together. But it's a taste of now and the future when you talk to people who are in that condition. Because what really matters is hope heaven, hopeful heaven, not hopeless heaven, real heaven, physical heaven with Christ and with each other. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Lord, eternity begins now. And this passage, Matthew 22, it ends really with the crowds hearing what Jesus taught. And they marveled where the Sadducees rejected. And I pray that today, those who are hearing this message would marvel at heaven, marvel at your teaching on heaven and what awaits. Let us not walk away and forget what we just heard, but let us anticipate heaven because we love you more than anything. We love you more than life itself because you are the way, the truth, and the life. In Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen.